This program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation, based in Los Angeles, California. The Kavli Foundation is dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice. Oh, honey, who's going to want to buy this place on a cul-de-sac? It's literally a dead end. But for professional advice, a REMAX agent actually knows best. Let's start with a neighborhood analysis. I've been seeing lots of buyers looking to move here. REMAX is the most trusted name in real estate. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Based on 2022 BrandSpark American Trust Study. Each office independently owned and operated. I'm Alan Alda. And this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. By naming it Dark Energy, I wanted to get everyone's attention to say, we don't really know what this is. We know that it has repulsive gravity, but I think it's a much bigger puzzle. In fact, I've gone out on a limb several times to say it's the most profound problem in all of science. That's Michael Turner. He helped bring together two fields of study, each one amazingly difficult in itself. One is trying to understand the smallest particles in the universe, and the other is figuring out how the universe began and evolved into what it is today and what it will become. He explores these things by making what he modestly calls cat scratches on a piece of paper. But in the 10 years I've known Michael, he's never spoken to me in the cat scratch language that the rest of us call math because I wouldn't be able to follow him. Instead, he finds ways to describe these invisible things in words that light up our minds and help us to imagine them, like his coming up with the term dark energy. This is so great to be talking with you, Michael. I, I, I love our conversations all the time, but this is especially wonderful because we're talking about dark energy, and we talk all the time on this show about communication. And you achieved a communication hit home run when you named it Dark Energy. Tell me about how the name came about. There was a bit of consciousness to it um, in the following sense that it had been discovered that the expansion of the universe was speeding up. That's a big deal. It should be slowing down due to gravity, but it was discovered it was speeding up. My opinion was it was slowing down. <laughs> <laughs> And I got disabused. Well, speak for yourself. Some of us are speeding up. Some of us are slowing down. (laughs) And uh, um, the astronomers really wanted to jump on it and say, oh, that's just Einstein's lambda. Uh, When Einstein thought he was wrong, he was really right. That's how smart he is. Because he he almost thought it was... It would have to be speeding up, but then he said it couldn't be possible. Or How did that work? Well, it's a bit of an aside. So... um, Einstein, um, when he wrote down his theory of general relativity and applied it to the universe, um, he wanted to get a static universe because at the time it, we didn't know the universe was expanding. 
So he introduced this fudge factor called the cosmological constant to create a static solution. And uh, the cosmological constant, you know, once once you let uh, the cat out of the bag with theorists, it's there forever. So you can't just throw it away. You have to say, uh, gee, what could it do? And um, if if it's not balanced in the way that he did it, it would cause the universe to speed up. A cosmological constant all by itself wants to cause the expansion to speed up. And so it's funny, he doesn't, not that he needs the credit. He, he, he did a lot of really good things, but he never talked about a speeding up universe. I want to get into what it is, what dark energy is. I love it that you have a playful way of talking about things as mysterious and rich and deep as dark energy. And one of the examples of that is the way you named it. I think you had three names you were <laughs> you were considering. What was the first one? Well, um, pretty playful, I think. Yeah, funny energy. Funny energy, and at a certain point, you realized you couldn't raise much money with that. <laughs> yeah, the focus groups love funny energy. They said, you know, unlike the normal physics stuff that's very off-putting, and and uh, that's terrific. And then I said, we're going to need a couple billion dollars to figure out what it is. Uh, you need another name. That that's. A, <laughs> And by naming it dark energy, I wanted to get everyone's attention to say, we don't really know what this is. We know that it has repulsive gravity. We know that it could be a cosmological constant, but I think it's a much bigger puzzle. In fact, I've gone out on a limb several times to say it's the most profound problem in all of science, which oh, is- Oh, that, that's great. That's, that's, that's a great way to get into what I want to get into, what I think we ought to get into next. For anybody who is unfamiliar with the notion of dark energy, it's kind of interesting that we look up at the sky, we look down at our breakfast cereal, all the things we can see, the universe that we can observe is how much of the universe? So the, the light that we see is a half a percent of the universe. Whoa. Yeah, it's really amazing. And that's part of the revolution that happened, you know, within the last 30 years, realizing that even though we need, we know nothing of the universe without the light, uh, because it's really big and we, we can't go very far, but the light is uh, a half a percent. Stars are one half of a percent of the total amount of the universe. So most of the matter that you and I are made out of, we call it ordinary matter, or uh, mm -hmm. some of the experts call it baryonic matter, stuff made out of atoms, that's a full 5%. So that would be gases, dust, and things like that? Yeah, a full 5%. And so 4.5% is already dark, but it's not dark in the sense that you can detect it. It's hot gas giving off x-rays dust, mm. as you say, not giving off, well, giving off infrared light, but mainly blocking light. So that's 5% is the ordinary stuff that uh, everything here on earth is made out of, the atomic stuff. So 95% is what? We don't even know what it is. Well, we have names for it. Isn't that good enough? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so 70% uh, is dark energy. And we talked a little bit about dark energy. And the other 25% is dark matter. And dark matter, um, we, we think is, it's the matter that holds together our galaxy. Its gravity holds together our galaxy. 
Um, we think it's just particles that don't give off light. Uh, you know, I know that's a big mystery. I, I know that sounds exotic to many people, but it, it's less exotic than the dark energy, uh, which we have much less understanding of. So we, we've got it in these three bins. We've got a- actually four bins, atoms, and some of the atoms are stars, a very small amount of the atoms are stars. And we have the dark matter, uh, which holds everything together. And we think it's just a particle that doesn't give off light. And then we've got the big, big mystery, uh, dark energy, which is causing the universe to speed up and controls its destiny. I'm thinking of how strange this was when I first heard about it. The notion is that not every bit of the universe is expanding. For instance, it's expanding in the sense that the galaxies are moving away from one another, all of them, at an accelerated pace. But within the galaxy, there's no expansion, right? And it was a weird thing for me to understand because if this dark energy is so powerful. Why wasn't it affecting me? For instance, I have noticed that my stomach is expanding and it's accelerating. So I thought that maybe that was dark energy. Or, or it could be that the universe is expanding because of too much pizza and Brunello. Um, I, I don't think you can blame your stomach on the dark energy, but the, the, uh, the thing that you did get right um, is not everything is expanding. The um, galaxies are not expanding. The solar system is not expanding. And the reason why is we live in an enormous concentration of matter. So if you went out into empty space between galaxies... The dark energy is just ruling, but dark energy can't clump up and matter can. So we were in a, a, a giant marshmallow of dark matter. Exactly. Exactly. I'm a little confused by something. Uh, only one, a little. One thing. <laughs> yeah, just a little and only by something. <laughs> Often it's referred to as anti-gravity. It sounds like a, a different kind of force altogether. I am uh, a single one-person anti-anti-gravity person, um, and um, it's a bad crusade to be on. But uh, so, dark energy—the gravity of dark energy—is repulsive. This pushing apart of the universe is not a new force. It's it's right there in Einstein's equations, and there's no reason not to call it gravity except for the fact that when I say the word gravity, the first thing that comes to your mind is it attracts, it pulls things Mm. together. But this is not a new force of nature, as far as we know. It's just something whose gravity is repulsive. I don't know if that was helpful or not. It's getting more and more repulsive as you talk. (laughs) The thing that sounds to me like what's happening here in this part of our conversation is the difference between the way a mathematician is able to think and the way I'm able to think. You can take gravity and put a minus sign in front of it and it makes perfect sense to you. And it doesn't to me. It's a question I often ask theorists. Do you see the universe in math, in numbers and symbols, or do you see it in words and pictures? Uh, I'm more in the middle. Feynman is someone that you knew, and he was one of my mentors when I was an undergraduate at Caltech. And 
he visual. I mean, he certainly used equations, but he visualized things a lot. I have to to visualize something first. There, there are theorists like Murray Gelman um, and other theorists who really just do it with equations and don't need the pictures or the visualization. And I have to work it out in in my mind before I can write down equations. Feynman once said in a class I took, never try to solve a problem until you know the answer. So think it through <laughs> and figure out the answer and then start writing down the equations. I'm not sure that's exactly what he meant, but that's that's how it is with me is that if I start with the pure equations, I'm going to make a minus sign mistake and I'm going to find myself in, in a bad place. Whereas if I kind of reason it out, this is how it's got to work, or I have a picture of it, then I can make the math go along and... Uh, and and make it more rigorous. I don't know if that makes any sense, but on the scale you were talking about, I'm kind of in the middle. Right, right. And yet these amazing things happen where somebody just working with math can figure out a property that something has that had never been observed before and predict that it's there. And sometimes a generation later or more, there'll be an instrumentation or an experiment that can show that it really is there. And it was predicted just by the math. That's, that's remarkable. I mean, that sort of almost makes me think the world is, the universe is made of math, but I, do you, what do you think on that question? It is amazing that the little scrawls on a piece of paper have something to do with the world. And there's so many, uh, the best example in my mind was Murray Gelman, who introduced mathematically the ideas of quarks. And uh, that famously, quarks could not be found early on because their properties were unexpected. And at one point, I believe he really did say this, but he later denied saying it. As he said, these could just be mathematical constructs and not have anything to do with reality. And then, of course, they were found. And the reason that they were hard to isolate had to do with how strong the forces are between quarks and this and that. But it is amazing that little cat scratches on a piece of paper have something to do that you can make predictions, that you, you can say, mm. gee, yeah. there must be atoms or there must be quarks, and billions of dollars later and years later, it's proven that they're there. And it works the other way around. Sometimes something's observed and you figure out how it got that way or why, how it fits in with other things through, through theory. It's, it's unfortunate that people say, um, people in the public like me often say it's only a theory. People like me sometimes don't recognize a theory is not just a wild guess. The, the word theory is very sacred to theorists. It's, uh, so I, I appreciate your, uh, the reverence, which you're discussing it. And, and I think, when, when we talk about how science moves forward, um, sometimes it's an unexpected discovery. Sometimes it's the theorists pointing the direction. Sometimes it's an unexpected discovery, and then the theorists say, oh, yeah, I anticipated that. Yeah, I knew that all the time. But it's this healthy tension between, um, you know, the ha- arm wavers, the theorists, and the people who go do things. And, and the goal of science is not just a book of facts, but it's understanding. So we need, we need these theories, and they become more sophisticated. Uh, and then sometimes it's the experimenters who find some new phenomena that was completely unexpected 
And yet I love that tension you described between the theorists and the experimenters. And I've seen you in the lectures refer to the experimenters as the plumbers. <laughs> I, I borrowed that <laughs> jokingly. From, yeah, I borrowed that from uh, Murray Gelman, but he's no longer around to argue. But it's very different personality type. Science is like a baseball team. You you need all different kinds of people. If you had a baseball team and every, all everybody on the team could just throw the ball very fast and nobody could catch or hit, um, you, you you wouldn't go very far. And you need the the uh, the experimenters almost have a disdain for the theorists. They're they're. Uh, motivation is to disprove the theorists and which is good which is good we don't we don't want um uh, a science where people aren't skeptical where it's 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 fitting data to the theories and and the theorists sometimes Feynman famously um he and Murray Gaman had this v minus a theory of of how um certain nuclei decay a very important theory and it didn't quite fit the data it was off by 7%. And Feynman said, sometimes experimenters make mistakes. <laughs> and uh, we, we need to stick with it. Now, in the end of the day, it was a little bit more complicated than that. Uh, the theory was right, but sometimes you have to stick with a theory that seems really good because not all the fact. In fact, Feynman, I think once, um, I'm not sure he said all these things I'm attributing to him, but I think he once said, any theory that fits all the facts is wrong because not all the not all the facts at any given time are right. So beware of a theory that agrees with all the data because there's at least one bad data point there. You remind me when you talk about the healthy tension between the experimenters and the theorists. It sounds so much to me like the set of a television show where the television show is being filmed. It's it, it's almost without exception, I think, where the writers up in their writing room are saying to one another, why won't they do it the way we wrote it? And the actors are down on the stage saying, who wrote this crap? But little by little, they come to a compromise and they and you get something that's worth watching once in a while. When we come back from our break, Michael Turner tells me what came before the Big Bang. And it turns out St. Augustine got it pretty much right 1,600 years ago. And Michael explains why pondering the notion that our universe might be only one of an infinite number of universes gives him a migraine. Clear and Vivid can be downloaded for free because it's supported by our sponsors and by, as they say, people like you. But there are no people like you. You're you. We want to make sure you know about patreon.com slash clearandvivid. That's where if you love hearing from the extraordinary guests we have on our shows, you can become a patron and get early access to special videos. And at the highest tier, you can join me in our monthly get-together online. I think you'll find out that the listeners to our podcast are often as much fun to hear from as our guests. We're grateful to you all. Thank you. And don't forget to check out patreon.com slash clearandvivid. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. 
The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Disney Plus and Hulu are better together in the Disney bundle with new movies and series. On Disney Plus, experience the full Taylor Swift The Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with new main show performances and acoustic collection. On Hulu, follow the fantastical evolution of Bella Baxter, played by Emma Stone in the award-winning film Poor Things. All of these and more streaming this month. Get the Disney Bundle with Disney Plus and Hulu. Terms apply. See DisneyBundle.com for details. When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. REMAX agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Michael Turner. You mentioned quarks a couple of times, and I've read that your work largely deals with bringing quarks and the cosmos together somehow. They seem really far flung to me. The quarks are so tiny and the cosmos is so big and has so many huge forces in it. What's the relationship? Gosh, you know, my career has just been wandering around following things that seem interesting to me. Um, I started out as a graduate student studying quarks, uh, because Feynman sent me to Stanford and said, that's the graduate school you want to go to. I thought he was actually thinking about me. That's where he wanted to go, uh, because (laughs) that's where they were doing these important experiments, but whatever. I thought he was paying attention to me. And, uh, I went up there to study particle physics and then I got, I don't know, I got, uh, life got in the way. I got disillusioned. I became an animal caretaker at the Stanford Medical Center. I dropped out of Stanford for a while. Um, And then I came back and studied general relativity. Uh, And then I went to the University of Chicago um, and had a mentor there who got interested in cosmology. And he said, "I I think this stuff is really interesting. And, uh, you know, you're a postdoc. Why don't you try something new? You've been working on gravitational waves. That's not going anywhere. Well, he was right. It took 40 years for gravitational waves to become important. And um, so I got in on the ground floor and it was really interesting. It was really fun. It was combining stuff that I knew. It, it, was, it was different kind of scientists like different problems. I'm a big picture guy. I, I can't do the details. And so, you know, talking about the universe and how it began, that's kind of big picture stuff. And um, uh, my mentor, David Schramm, um, oh, this was great. Everybody was excited about this possible connection between the two fields, um, the very big and the very small. And, oh, my God, if there is such a connection, that's just amazing. And um, everybody loved us to give talks, but there was no data. And uh, we were in this balloon powered by ethereal ideas that was rising higher and higher, and maybe it was going to disappear. And then 1998, that's the year my, or 1997, December 1997, my David Schramm died in a plane crash. 
1998 was the big year. That's when all the data came that said, you know, this, these connections between the quarks and the cosmos are really real. This is not just really interesting ideas that are entertaining so that we'll invite you to come give a colloquium and give us your latest idea about how the universe began. But the, this idea that there's a connection between the very small and the very big is real. And since roughly the year 2000, um, this view that there are deep fundamental connections between the very big and the very small, even the astronomers accept it. Everybody, yeah, of course, we invented that idea. We, we uh, yeah, we knew that all along. We were only still <laughs> studying galaxies because our, um, I'm, I'm being funny about that, but um, this, is a, this is one of those big, crazy ideas. And it's crazy because you got it. You, 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 you ask the question, how can there be a connection between quarks and the cosmos? There just can't be a connection. Well, there is, and it's very deep, and it, it's very interesting and profound. The short answer is, in the beginning, the universe was very small. How small was it? Do we, do we have a, do we have a, is it smaller than a pea? Is it smaller than a, a, a seed? Um, so first of all, we don't know how big the universe is today, so the, it's hard to answer that question. But if we talk about just the part of the universe we can see today, that's, mm. you know, 15 billion light years across, um, uh, th that was, you know, smaller than an orange. A navel orange or one with <laughs> seeds? <laughs> one with seeds. Okay, good. And everything was all squished together. Everything was like a, some kind of unity. There was no, no activity going on. There were no parts to it. Oh, my goodness. It was hot quark soup, and it, it was simmering. Things that took place there, I like to say, uh, laid out the blueprint for the universe. That quark soup phase has left its imprint on the universe in the dark matter, uh, in the galaxies that began as quantum fluctuations. That early, hot, dense phase where you need elementary particle physics to understand it, uh, profoundly shape the universe. So let me ask you a personal question. What made the quark soup begin? What, why, why was everything all bunched up there in this little tiny orange-shaped thing? And all of a sudden, <laughs> it's, it started bubbling quark soup and became our universe. What, 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 who put it there? What, what's, what's what, what forces made that happen? Well, so you're asking a really big question. Uh, why is there something rather than nothing? You know, wh right. why do we even have a universe? And I'm, I'm not going to bite on that one right now. Uh, <laughs> but the other question is one that we can answer, and it's just facts. So the universe is expanding. Oh, well, that means it was smaller in the past. Uh, the universe has a temperature. Uh, it's, it's filled with these cosmic microwaves called the cosmic microwave background that tells us that the average temperature today is 2.728 above absolute zero. So um, as it expanded, it cooled. So that means it was hot in the past and smaller. Um, so that's just extrapolating back. And the hotter it is, the more particles you get in the bath, because the hotter it is, the more energy is available to create the particles. So the quark soup part, extrapolating back, you may not trust extrapolations, or you may worry about, are you sure? Do you have some tests along the way? But it's just extrapolating backward. But 
going to the other side of the Big Bang, asking the question, okay, you're so smart. Uh, what happened before the Big Bang? You know, what went bang? Um, and that's actually exciting. The, Einstein had an answer to that, which is um, uh, nothing. Uh, there was no before the Big Bang. Actually, it's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. I, Einstein was the second person to this idea. The first person was St. Augustine. Um, and the Big Bang, according to Einstein, uh, was the singular creation of matter, energy, space, and time. Uh, there was no before the Big Bang. Uh, St. Augustine had it in more religious words. He was asked, what did God do before he created heaven and earth? And, well, his first answer was he created hell for those who'd asked that question. But... <laughs> So it sounds like my question deserves the same fate. But the second answer he had was that, you know, uh, God created time at the same instant he created space. And so so therefore there was no before. Yeah, which is a really philosophically pleasing, may not be true, but it's beautiful. But now um, with all these ideas, particularly string theory, um, that singular beginning, singular is a fancy word for we don't understand. So singular is not pretty in general relativity. It's the most ugly part of general relativity because a singularity is where the laws of physics break down. It's where you take one and divide it by zero. Your math teacher told you never to do that. And uh, uh, so string theory would get rid of those singularities and maybe allow us to peer to go further back. Um, but it still doesn't really under- ask the answer the question that you I, that you may have wanted, which is, where did it all come from? Why is there something rather than nothing? My experience in the present cosmos, the present universe, is that there usually isn't just one of anything. <laughs> Therefore, that experience leads me to think if there was one orange-shaped bowl of quark soup, there could be others all over the place. Uh, you're slyly trying to describe the multiverse. Uh, and <laughs> sneaking in, yeah. You're sneaking it in. You're spending too much time with Brian Greene. Uh, <laughs> so do you have a philosophical or mathematical objection to the possibility of a multiverse, many universes? It gives me a headache. Let me, <laughs> let me tell you why it gives me a headache. Is that yes, please do. It is simultaneously possibly the most important idea since Copernicus. And by the way, who would ever bet against the universe being bigger than we presently think it is, right? I mean, you know, that's that's a sucker bet, right? Because historically, every time we thought we knew there was everything, you know, we thought, yeah, it's all stars. Stars, really big, lots of stars. Oops, dark matter, dark energy, hot gas. So it's simultaneously an extraordinarily important and attractive idea, but it's not testable. And the hallmark of science, the thing that distinguishes science from all the other endeavors, it's our brand, it's testability. It has to be falsifiable. If it's not falsifiable, it's not science, it's something else. And so here you're stuck with something that is such an attractive idea um, and, and so important, but not testable, not falsifiable. And... Um, that's a tough swallow for, for someone who's a scientist. I mean, it, 
you're going to ruin your brand if you all of a sudden allow ideas. Oh, we're going to let the multiverse in and we're going to give it full credit because, yeah, you don't really have to be testable. It just has to be really cool. And um, is it possible that you could just tuck it away in the drawer as one of the possibilities? I, I think you seem to like crazy ideas as a way to think forward. Um, yeah. So theorists have a, you know, we have on our little, you know, cards that we carry, um, you know, one of, one of our mottos is, uh, you know, that idea is crazy enough to be true. And, you know, when we, I mean, I'll segue back to dark energies very briefly. Um, the solution to the dark energy puzzle is going to look crazy. It, it's really going to look crazy. It's like quantum mechanics. When it was proposed to explain the weird phenomena, it, it looked crazy. And uh, so crazy ideas are important. And um, I think that the multiverse idea, just because it's not falsifiable now, he, here's, my, here's how I allow myself. This gets me out of my migraine with the multiverse. Is that Just because <laughs> it's not testable today, that doesn't mean it won't be testable. And the one thing I know for sure, and I would say it about dark energy and I would say it about most things is our understanding of it, if it is correct, is so primitive and so wrong that uh, it's going to get refined. And when it gets refined, it could be testable. And it's such a powerful idea. We need to keep it somewhere. We can't let it out of the room, but it can't be our flagship. You know, when, when we get up and give our speeches about how great science is, let's let's lead with the COVID vaccine and not the multiverse. <laughs> what I love is that we've finally gotten rid of your migraine. <laughs> and it sounds like a good point to take a pause in our conversation and pick up the next time we have a beer together. We, 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 we're running out of time, but before we go, we always end our show with seven quick questions. What do you wish you really understood um, why there's something rather than nothing. That, that's the biggest question in all of science. But I would settle for what dark matter is. How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? Um, I've gotten better at it. I, I learned something from a, one of my mentors that n knowledge, wisdom, wisdom and knowledge are acquired, not bestowed. And so if you're really going to work on someone who, who you care about that has their facts wrong, it's not a five minute exercise. It, it's not filling a vessel. It's not like, would you like your wine glass filled? It's, it's really knowledge is acquired, not bestowed. That's a great slogan. Third question. What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? You know, that's a really hard one. Um, I'm, I'm in a business where people say, do you think dark energy could be fill in the blank, asparagus, whatever? And so it's hard to, with questions like that. So actually, yeah, yeah. Could, could dark energy be asparagus? <laughs> <laughs> I won't wait for the answer to that. How do you stop a compulsive talker? Um, by not letting them get talking, by being a compulsive talker yourself. Uh, <laughs> actually, you are? I, I think that I really enjoy engaging with people. And um, I think getting engaged with them 
and saying, yeah, I want to hear more about that. Could you stop right there and, and uh, you know, expound upon that feature of it? Somehow make it a conversation. And then if making it a conversation doesn't work, you can say, oh, by the way, I, I've got to go now. <laughs> <laughs> but that is an interesting aspect to compulsive talkers is that they change the subject with no warning. And if you get to stop them before they change the subject, no, no, tell me about that. That was really interesting. You might get a conversation. That, that's an interesting technique. So, okay, next question. Let's say you're at a dinner party again someday when it's possible to be at a dinner party and you're sitting next to someone you don't know. How do you start up a real authentic conversation with that person? So I don't have a set formula, but what I love to hear is what gets them out of bed in the morning? What's their passion? Mm-hmm. And um, for so, me, it's mostly having to pee I don't <laughs> know. in um, the morning. I, well, I'm using it metaphorically, and oh, uh, I see. I got and you. so um, and and I'll look for signals from them. You know, I'm looking at this person, and if they're dressed in a very exotic way or artistic or because uh, that's where I really, that's the most interesting conversation is what are you really passionate about? What is it that gets you up in the morning? What, what is, you know, is it your grandchildren? Is it uh, the book you're working on? Is it the painting you're painting? Is it trying to figure out dark energy? And I would trade that for just about anything. Just, and it, and it, people's passions, I, I, I could sit there next to someone telling me uh, that, that they're a high jumper. And that mm. they want to, they want to break. I don't know what the record is, twenty-one feet or twenty feet. And I, I would love to just hear the nuance of, of what did, what do you do, to become the world's best high jumper or whatever it is. I want to tap into that passion and and hear what they're passionate about. Yeah, that's great. Okay, next to last, what gives you confidence? Um. You know, what gives me confidence um, is the next generation. You know, my kids, the, the, you know, my postdocs and students, and they look at the world differently. And I don't quite understand how they look at it. And they, they're, uh, you know, they're trained differently. Their skills are different. But they're, uh, let me talk about the, you know, the scientific young ones. They're still passionate about trying to figure out how the universe works. And so as long as we have people like that, everything's going to be okay. Great. This is the last question. What book changed your life? I think it was uh, the Feynman Lectures on Physics. Mm. Um, the, the three big books? Yeah. They're, the yeah, big they're, red ones. The, the, red, the Red Bible, as we called it. Yeah. And uh, yeah. I got it when I was in high school. And it was just a completely new way of thinking about the, how the world worked. And that's what I wanted to be, was a physicist. That book gave me the way to think about the world. Mm. It was equation second, and it was figuring it out first, visualizing it, uh, you know, thinking carefully, and then putting the, the pencil to paper, and, and just the beauty of it. That's great. I had such a good time talking with you today. Thank you so much, Michael. I enjoyed it too. Thank you, Alan. This has been Clear and Vivid, 
At least I hope so. Our thanks to the Kavli Foundation for sponsoring both Clear and Vivid and our sister series, Science Clear and Vivid. The Kavli Foundation is dedicated to the advancement of science for the benefit of humanity. Michael Turner is Professor Emeritus in the Departments of Astronomy and Astrophysics at the University of Chicago, where he taught for 40 years. Last year, he was appointed Senior Strategic Advisor at the Kavli Foundation. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd, with help from our associate producer, Gene Chimay. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. Remax agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit Remax.com or download the Remax app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated. Next time on Clear and Vivid, we continue our exploration of the heavens with someone who may seem to be an unexpected guide. The celebrated guitarist and founder of the rock band Queen, Brian May. I should say Dr. Brian May, astrophysicist. Well, it was drummed into me, as probably yourself when I was growing up, that you had to choose your path. And if you took science, you couldn't be an artist, etc. And I hated it at the time. I rebelled against it. And it, that notion has persisted with me all my life. I, I always felt that I'm fighting against being put in a box. And I found that where, whatever steps I've taken which would apparently take me to one extreme or another, they always brought me in a circle back to the, the center. Where, And the center, I think, is where you realize that to be an artist and a scientist and a human being are all completely um, complementary and, and make perfect sense. Brian May's skills with 3D imaging have given him a role in NASA's Perseverance mission on Mars. But during our talk, we'll also have a moment to listen to his better-known skill. This is from a new recording celebrating our hoped-for emergence from the COVID lockdowns. On Thursday, on our other podcast, Science Clear and Vivid, we continue our excursion into space with cosmologist Chanda Prescott-Weinstein. As a black female professor, she's a rarity in her field, and she relishes the fact that all the things we see and experience in our lives, including the stars in the sky, are themselves rarities in the cosmos. So the way that I like to present this to people is that we tend to think of ourselves as normal, like I am what's typical of matter in the universe, but actually we're what's strange about the universe because most of the structure in the universe, most of the matter in the universe, and most of our galaxy is actually made out of matter that's completely unlike us. And I think that this is like another way in which we are precious because we are what's weird. 
um, we're, we're not the likely scenario. The likely scenario is a bunch of dark matter that looks, and I put looks in air quotes because we can't see it, nothing like us. While Michael Turner involved us in the mystery of dark energy, Chanda Prescott-Weinstein's fascination is with dark matter. She champions an invisible and so far undetectable candidate for what dark matter actually is. Next time on Science Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. And I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.